According to the New York Times Magazine, a group of Americans were surveyed about their views about life after death. 10% believe that they will return to earth in a different form. I think you call that reincarnation. 10% believe there is no life after death. When you're dead, that's it. 24% believe that the soul lives in a different place, determined by their past actions. 48% believe that people go to heaven or hell depending on a confession of sins and accepting Jesus. 8% were undecided. The question is, is, what do you think? The popular opinion will not uh, determine the outcome. Uh, Do you believe in reincarnation? Do you believe in when you're dead, that's it? Do you believe your soul will go to a different place based on your good behavior now or your poor behavior now? Do you believe that there is a heaven and a hell and that the entrance requirements for each is based on what you do about Jesus? Or are you just undecided? In Mark chapter 10... Verses 13 through 31, Jesus addressed this subject with his disciples. And let me just uh, remind you a little bit. Jesus has now been with his disciples. He's had this public ministry. He went public when he was about 30 years old and he was baptized. He's, He's been with them now for about two and a half years. And if you recall, he's been up north and his headquarters for most of those two and a half years has been Capernaum on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. No map. And then he headed south to Jerusalem. And he's on his way to Jerusalem. And uh, because ultimately he faces his death there and he knows it and he's, dis- he's told his disciples twice already what's going to happen in Jerusalem. Um, so... We're going to start in chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. If you want to open your Bibles, please do. Chapter 10, Mark chapter 10. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. First thing we're going to say this morning is life in God's kingdom must be received. Life in God's kingdom must be received. That's what we see in verses 13 through 16. Now, this concept of the kingdom of God is one that's been used in the Gospel of Mark from chapter 1. The kingdom of God is about God's influence on this earth. It's about God's rule. It's about how much influence he has now, and it's about his rule in the future, his kingdom. We talk about his kingdom now, his kingdom that is coming. Ultimately, there will be an eternal kingdom where he will rule in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. We're talking about life in God's kingdom must be received. The problem happens in verse 13 where we, we see people were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples... Rebuke them. You know, the disciples had gained some authority in following Jesus. They had gained some confidence in following Jesus. And uh, they also had gained a little bit of control 
So they think about what goes on at Jesus' meetings. Uh, Apparently, moms and dads were bringing their children to meet Jesus because they hoped to receive some kind of blessing, some kind of favor from this great person, Jesus. You know, it's a good deal to hang around Jesus. A lot of good things have happened around Jesus. So it was just kind of normal for people to bring their kids for some kind of favor, some kind of blessing. The disciples, however, didn't think this was a good idea because Jesus is really an important person. And the kids will be bothersome. Let's not waste Jesus' time with kids. In their eyes, children were not very important. They weren't important enough to bother Jesus with. Now, this may seem a little bit odd because in our culture, we're all about kids and children's rights. And we're very concerned about how kids are treated. Not so in the first century. Um, the disciples' perspective here is really a perspective of their culture. They, they, they had bought into this. Children had no rights. They had no economic value. Yes, people were concerned about kids because they wanted somebody to help them with work, and they wanted somebody to help them uh, carry on the, their future name. But kids, in general, were viewed as liabilities, not assets. There's a l- letter that remains from... Uh, 1 B.C., that is a year before the birth of Christ, from a, from a labor to his pregnant wife. Uh, this happens to be from Alexandria, so this is not Israel, but it just kind of shows a worldly mindset. He writes to his wife, if it's a, if it's a boy, keep it, it. If it's a girl, cast it out. That's very sad, but that was the first century Perspective. It's not uncommon to hear that today in different cultures. Jesus saw his disciples' mistake and corrected it quickly. Look at the correction in verse 14. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He was passionate about this. He said to them, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. You see, Jesus wanted kids to have all access to him. The word children is a word that's used for kids basically 12 and under. We know because it was used of a girl 12. And we know that uh, a son or daughter becomes a son or daughter of the commandments at age 13. So this is a term used for younger than that. And apparently, primarily smaller kids were in this group, according to Matthew and Luke. Um, Children are not to be viewed as inferior by Jesus or his followers. The reason, uh, verse 14, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Children are welcome in the kingdom of God. They are not to be detained or hindered. Access to the kingdom of God must be offered to children, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Such as these includes people with no rights, um, no privileges, No power, no authority. It includes the poor and the humble in this world. Children may be cast away by some, but not by Jesus and not by his followers. Jesus uh, next gives us an important truth in verse 15 uh, about the entrance into the kingdom. He says, truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Notice that he refers to anyone here. 
Anyone? That like probably includes you and me. Uh, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God, like a little child, will never enter it. There's something important here about children. First of all, I want us to see that the kingdom of God must be received. By the way, it is a gift. I can clearly say that from other passages. But Jesus said, anyone who will not receive the kingdom, it must be received. And he says, it's like a child. A child who's dependent and trusting, like a child who knows he or she needs help. A lot of people just don't know they need help. Um, The point is, life in God's kingdom must be received. And the Apostle John picks this idea up in John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12. He came, uh, Jesus, he came to that which was his own. That means he came to the nation Israel. He came to his own people. He came to his own, the Jewish people of Israel in the first century. But his own did not receive him. As a nation, he really wasn't welcome. As a nation, they didn't embrace him. He was their Messiah. He was their great king. The kingdom of God was at hand. The the kingdom was present, and the king was present, but really only a small number. Yes, there were multitudes, but it was a minority that engaged with Jesus. His own did not receive him. Yet, to all who did receive him, because there needed to be an embracing of Jesus, there needed to be a reception of Jesus, Because the the kingdom must be received. The king must be received to those who believe in his name. That's the same group. The groups that receive is the group that believes. If you believe, you receive. If you receive, you believe. You can't do one without the other, at least according to John chapter 1, verse 12. Uh, To all who did not receive him, to those who, excuse me, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right become, guess what? Children of God. Children born, not of natural descent, nor of human decision or of a husband's will, but born of God. Here's one thing I want you to see very clearly. It's really important uh, to where we're going this morning. In John chapter 1, verse 13, he's talking about, first of all, children born to their parents of natural descent, of physical birth. They're born of natural descent, human decision, or a husband's will. But that's not how you enter the kingdom. It's being born of God. That's how you become a child of God. Receive by believing. Become a child of God. And you're born of God spiritually. And you're born into God's family. It's an important concept. We're going to come back to it. Back to Mark chapter 10, verse 16. And we see what Jesus does. He welcomes the children And he took the children in his arms and he placed his hands on them and he blessed them. Jesus was just loving about this. He he pronounced blessing on those kids and he just welcomed them and he embraced them and he touched them. He was warm and he was tenderhearted. He was totally accessible to these kids. Now, just as a side here, did, did this bring individual salvation to those kids? Did this cause them to be born again? And the answer is no. There's no evidence here at all that that's what happened. It's just plain old. He loved on them, and he blessed them, and he wished them well, and God's favor. Now, if you encountered Jesus like that, how might that impact you? Or if your kids had an encounter with, met Jesus face to face. My point is, each one of them 
just like your kids today, have to make that decision for themselves. And those kids had to do that at some point in their lives as well. We just don't know what happened after this for them. Um, so, uh, life in the kingdom must be received. Secondly, life in God's kingdom cannot be earned, verses 17 through 27. This is the, really the heart of the passage, verses 17 through 27. The question comes in verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So after Jesus blessed the children, a man ran up to him, probably kind of startling, and probably overzealous, probably pretty passionate about this situation and this opportunity he has. And he, he fell on his knees out of respect for Jesus. This has happened before. Other people have run up to Jesus. Sometimes they're demon-possessed. Sometimes they come to ask their, for their daughter's healing. This man comes up out of respect for Jesus, and he bows before him. Good teacher. And he uses this term, good teacher, um, out of respect. You know, he knows something great here about Jesus, and so he calls him good teacher. But it's interesting to note that in the first century, people didn't say, good rabbi, because that's what teacher means, and Jesus was a rabbi. You didn't address a rabbi with good. Um, Jesus kind of picks up on this. And this great question here, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a great question. And he's really come to the right person to get an answer. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Um, you wonder what this guy's motives are, though. He comes up because as we, maybe I, I should wait a, a phrase or two before we, but think about this. This guy is excited. He's zealous. He's passionate about these issues. And he wants to meet Jesus. Did he want Jesus to sort of like congratulate him for how great he was? Counter question, verse 18. This is from Jesus. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. This is true. Why do you call me good? Uh, this is very fitting for first century Judaism or the religion of Israel. In the first century, it was often thought that the way you achieved eternal life was by keeping the law, by doing things that were good and moral, and those things pleased God, and those things made God happy with you, and you could, get to, you could earn eternal life that way, by doing good works. So Jesus answers with a counter question, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And this is absolutely true. To be totally good is to be perfect. Jesus is probing this guy. This guy's come up. This guy's seeking. This guy is spiritually interested in truth. He's interested in the big, important things in life. What about life after death? What about eternal life? Um, and so Jesus asks this question, uh, and he's probing. Um, Verse, why do you call me good? Good question. Why did this guy call Jesus good? What does he know about Jesus previously? Is Jesus warranted to be called good? Especially if only God alone can be called good. Does he know? And he doesn't get it, by the way. But Jesus approaches that. Young man does not understand the significance of who Jesus is. Next time he addresses him, he doesn't call him good. Jesus picks up in verse 19, you know the commandments. Of course he does. 
Of course he knows the commandments. The Ten Commandments we're talking about. Of course he does. And Jesus recites a few of them here. You shall not murder. Yeah, I know that one. You shall not commit adultery. Yeah, I got that. You shall not steal. Yes, I know that. You shall not give false testimony. Can't lie about your neighbor. You shall not defraud. defraud. By the way, this is the only one that's not in the Ten Commandments, unless Jesus is alluding to sort of the outcome if somebody covets something. This may be a reference to that. It doesn't really make any difference because you're not supposed to defraud your neighbor anyway. And the last one is honor your father and mother. Um, so this refers to what we call the second table of the Decalogue. It's a second tablet of the Ten Commandments that Moses received. And it's all about your neighbor. It's about those horizontal relationships. How do you treat each other? And um, verse 20 lists, uh, the, er, refers to achievements of this young man. Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. I got it. What's next? I'm in. I've done these things. And uh, this is really a great example of the first century Jewish religion. It, this represents a very moral religion about how you behave, about, well, I don't commit adultery, I, I don't steal, I don't, give, I don't lie, I, I, don't, I honor my parents. Uh, the focus here in the first century is on a moral code. It's on an external code on how we get along with people in public. It doesn't say anything about what's going on in the mind. And uh, this was really, this is how the Apostle Paul lived when he was Saul before he became a follower of Christ as a Pharisee. It was external. For example, you shall not commit adultery. Well, I've never committed adultery. But what about your thought life? Well, we don't go there. That's not part of it. It's just about whether I committed adultery publicly. Uh, You shall not steal. Well, I've never stolen anything publicly since I was... He says, since I was a boy, which means since I was 13. Since I became a son of the commandments, I don't do these things. And that's when a a Jewish boy was considered responsible before God to keep the law at age 13. He said, since then, I I haven't broken any of these. I haven't stolen anything. Well, have you ever thought about taking something from your neighbor that you'd like to have and just thought it through but never? That's the internal processor. You shall not give false testimony. Well, I've never publicly said anything that offended my neighbor, but what about in your heart and in your mind? And you shall not defraud. You shall, not, you shall honor your father and your mother. Well, I've always honored my father and mother publicly. But what about in your thought life? And uh, there's two different things. Jesus raised the bar in the first century quite a bit when he talked about how people think in their heart. The Bible, however, and this, he's just said, what about the, these laws? And um, the guy says, I've done this, at least the ones that relate to my neighbor. But the Bible does not teach that eternal life uh, comes by keeping rules or doing good works. The Apostle Paul tells us this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And he says, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. It's by grace. Grace is God's favor. This is how you get saved. This is how you get eternal life. This is how you enter the kingdom of God. It's by grace. It's a God thing. By grace you've been saved through faith. He's talking to the church here. He's talking later than Jesus' time. But it still remains true. 
It is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. Hey, guy, the young man, we know he's a rich young ruler because Luke tells us he was a synagogue ruler. Um, And this is not from yourselves. It's not about you. It's not about you keeping the rules. It is a gift of God. Jesus was teaching the same thing as something you had to receive, not by works. It's not about doing those good things so that no one could boast. Because if it were about good works, you could say, I'm better than you. I do more than you do. You're slacking off. And people would be bragging about their relationship with God. Verse 21, requirements. Jesus looked at him and loved him. And one thing you lack, he said, go. Sell everything you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. He says, you lack one thing. Does that sound like one thing? He says, go. Is that one thing? Sell everything. Is that one thing? Give to the poor. Is that one thing? Then come follow me. Is that one thing? Well, you just take up that with Jesus when you get to heaven. You can ask. What did he mean? It sounds like three or four things. What's the one thing the young man lacked? I think he lacked a relationship with God. Um, He did well with the commandments about people. Gosh, I don't commit adultery. I don't steal. I haven't killed anybody. I honor my parents. He He did well with this public persona. But he violated the first commandment. And the first commandment, on the first tablet, the first table of the Decalogue, you shall have no other gods before me. Because he has something ahead of God in his life. We would call it an idol. When you put something ahead of God, it's called idolatry. And he violated the first commandment. The young man's priority was his wealth, not his relationship with God. Look at the response, uh, verse uh, 22. At this, the man's face fell. He's disappointed. He went away sad. He's downcast because he had great wealth. Can't do it. I can't give up everything. The truth is God is not that important. I'm not sure I want to inherit eternal life if that's the cost. So the man could not comply with Jesus' instructions. He could have received eternal life, but his wealth was more important than trusting Jesus' words. Now, frankly, I'm glad that that wasn't the way of salvation that um, I heard when I came to faith in Jesus. Uh, This is not a prescription for all men. This is Jesus and the man standing before him who was a law keeper. We have plenty of information to support who the offer of the gospel is for. Jesus was seeing what was in his heart. He doesn't even have any more questions. He's just sad now, and he's going to leave. He could have inquired more. He he could have inquired, what does this entail? Um, And then Jesus gives very important information, teaching in verses 23 through 25. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. This is true. It was just illustrated. The man was an achiever. This man was used to earning his way. His wealth 
provided him with a comfortable life. He wasn't ready to give up his life that included comfort and his achievements and his recognition and just, you know, give it to the poor. In June 2006, Warren Buffett, the world's second richest man at that time, 2009 he was the richest man, announced that he would donate 85% of his $44 billion at that time, because he's going to earn more, he was going to donate uh, 85% of his $44 billion fortune to five charitable foundations. Commenting on this extreme level of generosity, Buffett said, there is more than one way to get to heaven, but this is a great way. This isn't a rich young man, but, but this is a rich man. And Jesus would totally disagree. I don't know anything about Buffett's spiritual life, but Jesus would totally disagree with this statement. Um, the disciples were amazed at his words, but G- this is uh, verse 24, chapter 10, verse 24. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, now, now Jesus is calling disciples children, and it's not because of their faith. It's because of their immaturity. Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 25, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. This is what you teach children. This gets their intention. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus uses a teaching device to communicate about this impossibility, about this issue. He uses extremes to make his point. Think about it, he says. It's impossible for a camel, the largest animal in first century Israel, to pass through the eye of a needle, one of the smallest objects that a human could have for an entry point. And he's saying it's impossible. He's saying this is an impossibility to, to this huge animal and make it go through this real small needle. And people try to explain it a lot of different ways, but Jesus was just, it's just obvious he was using extremes. This is large, this is small, this is impossible. And his point is, it's impossible for a rich man to earn his way into entrance in the kingdom of God. It is impossible for a rich man to earn his way, to achieve his way into the kingdom of God. Verses 26 and 27, he speaks of salvation. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Good question. But, you know, the disciples had that influence of their first century culture because, you know, in the Old Testament and during this first century time, people had this idea. Rich people were just blessed uh, out of their socks. Rich meant God is on your team. God, God likes you. And if you were poor, it meant God didn't like you. And Jesus came to straighten people out. Not true. And yes, there had been blessing in the Old Testament for obedience. And that includes sometimes prosperity. But that doesn't mean every time somebody's rich, it's because God is just blessing their socks off. Um, disciples were more amazed and who then could be saved verse 27 Jesus looked at them and said with man this is impossible but not with God all things are possible with God 
And here's another point. It will be possible for rich men to enter the kingdom of heaven with God. But not by achieving it for themselves. Humanly, it's impossible for anyone to achieve by doing good, by doing good works, by their performance. It is humanly impossible to enter the kingdom of God. But with God, all things are possible. One of the themes of the book of Mark is that man's ways are not God's ways, or that God's ways are not man's ways. And this is very true when it comes to this whole thing about salvation, about entering the kingdom of God, about inheriting eternal life. I love John chapter 3. The Apostle Paul helps us understand this idea in John chapter 3. And we're going to talk about entering the kingdom of God. Verse 1, now there was a Pharisee. So this is a highly trained religious man, expert in the Old Testament law. A man named Nicodemus who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. That means he was a member of the Sanhedrin, uh, the most important group governing body in the land of Israel. I'm guessing he was an old guy too because he's been around so long that he's a member of the ruling council. I used to say he was an old guy like me. I just came to realize he probably could have been younger than me, which really bothers me. (laughs) Verse 2, he came to Jesus at night. This, I love this humility. He's an important religious guy. If people saw him coming up in the daytime, they wouldn't understand his question. But he comes at night because he, he wants to con- come under the cover of darkness because he wants to approach Jesus privately. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, teacher, we know that you are a teacher who's come from God. That's major right there. He acknowledges that Jesus is the real deal. He's not just buttering him up. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. So Nicodemus recognized that all these miracles Jesus is doing mean something. Some of the religious leaders just want to put him to death. He does another miracle, let's kill him. And some of them think he's, he's from Satan. Next, next slide. Jesus replied, Verily I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God. There it is. That's what I want us to notice. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. We pick that up from John chapter 1. How can someone be born when they're old? That's a good question. Nicodemus is a literalist when it comes to interpreting Scripture. I like that. You've got to ask these questions. How can you be born when you're old? Even if it sounds silly, surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb and be born again. Makes sense. That's a good question. You can't do that, can you? You can't go back. I'm old. How can I go back to my mother? Next slide. Jesus answered very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Jesus said they have to be born of the water and then they have to be born of the Spirit. Now, some have taken that born of water is a reference to baptism. It doesn't say that, but that's how they interpret that. Born of water means baptism. Is that what Jesus is talking about? Let's look at it. You have to be born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, right? I I agree with that. Flesh gives birth to flesh. We've had three kids. Sue's had three pregnancies. Each time we had a baby, flesh gives birth to flesh. But the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. 
By the way, all three of those kids had a spiritual birthday later. You should not be surprised by my saying you must be born again. So what is verse 5? You must be born of water. He's talking about the physical birth. When a child comes into this world, they come with announced by the release of amniotic fluid, born of water, physical birth, and then there must be a spiritual birth. So what's this all about? How do you get born again? Jesus answers this in John chapter 3, verse 16. Next passage. Next slide. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is what Jesus told Nicodemus. This is how you enter the kingdom of God. This is how you are born again. This is how you receive a spiritual birth. This is how you get connected with God. Verse 17, for God did not send a son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. When Jesus came, he came to save the world. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. Verse 18 is true. It's a sad one, but it's true. If you've believed, you're not condemned. But if you've not believed, you stand condemned before God. That's the bad news. The good news is Jesus offers today for every one of us to place our faith in Christ and to be born again if we've never done that. Okay, we got three more verses. Number three, life in God's kingdom is about following Jesus now. Verse 28, and Peter spoke up, we have left everything to follow you. I love Peter. He's always stepping in, trying to, trying to think of something good to say, trying to think of something positive to say. In this case, I think he's trying to get a little attention because Jesus is just kind of this rich man who's so wealthy and proud and has done so many good things. Jesus is just said, you got to sell everything and follow me. And um, he walked away sad. Peter speaks up, hey, Lord, what about us? What about us? We've left everything to follow you. Jesus doesn't rebuke him, by the way. Probably could have and said, Peter, you're a little over the top there. Uh, but it's true. They had left everything. They left their fishing nets behind, their small businesses, their tax collecting, and they are in They're all in for three years. Verse uh, 29 and 30, reward. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel, meaning that message of the kingdom, that message of salvation we call the gospel, will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with, by the way, persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. To his disciples, he said, guys, you're going to make sacrifices for the sake of following Jesus. You've given up everything to follow me. There are going to be more sacrifices for you to make to come. And by the way, there's persecution coming as well. I want you to know that. Hard times, difficult times are coming. He says, but you will receive a hundred times for giving up everything and following me. Sounds great. Acts chapter 2. Kingdom of God. 
Peter gets up to preach. 3,000 people are saved. The church, a new form of the kingdom, takes off and begins to advance. The kingdom of God advancing one life at a time. And people begin to sell their houses and their property and banding together to, met, to help needs of the poor. hundred times. Blessing, relationships, a new community, a new family, the family of God, brothers and sisters and mothers that will become closer than blood ties. This was something coming and a major change. They're going to face persecutions, but in the age to come, they will receive eternal life. That's part of the kingdom of God for those who are in the kingdom of God. And with eternal life comes a whole nother, probably thousands of times greater in blessing. And here's the point. Follow Jesus now, and you will see blessing in the present life and in the age to come. Jesus is looking for people to follow him now. It's not about just believing the right things and say, oh yeah, I, I believe that, I'm okay. No, it's about following Jesus. It's about doing what Jesus said. Verse 31, the well, last passage, honor, but many who will be first will be last, and the last first. This is the kind of a general saying Jesus used on many occasions about the kingdom of God. It will be applied in many ways. Here people who are rich and powerful, who seem to be first in this world, are not going to be first. They're going to be last. And some of those people, the poor, the children, underprivileged people, are going to be first. The humble dependence far outweighs self-reliance and self-centeredness. This is a value the Apostle Paul taught in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. He said, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. The first will be last, and the last will be first. It wasn't really meant to be a competition. It was just about a value structure. About what the world values, man's ways are not God's ways, and God's ways are not man's ways. Life in God's kingdom is about following Jesus now. It's about putting this into practice. Um, To close, I'd like to share three things about starting a relationship with God. Three things about starting a relationship with God. First of all, when it comes to this receiving God's kingdom, it's about receiving the king who is Jesus. It's a relationship that you were made for. It's a relationship that you were made for. According to Colossians 1.16, you were made for God. And you will not find your purpose in life apart from God. There's no reason to live apart from God. He made you, and he wants to be in relationship with you. And his purpose for you is found in that relationship. He made you to be connected. He made you to be in relationship. Secondly, so the first is, it's a relationship you were made for. Secondly, it's a relationship that you can have um, because, God ha- because of what God has done for you. Here's a short summary of the New Testament. 
In Romans 3.23, the scripture says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible teaches that all human beings are sinners. All human beings since the beginning, except one named Jesus Christ, have fallen short of God's standards and are sinners. The Bible also says, also says in Romans 6.23, the consequence of our sin is eternal death. For the wages of sin is death. And that's not physical death. It's eternal spiritual death. Revelation calls it the second death. Jesus called it hell. There are consequences for sin. Thirdly, in Romans 5.8, God is the one who solved this problem that we have with our sin. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It was because of his love for us, God sent his son Jesus. And Jesus died on the cross for us. I deserve the death. We deserve the death. Jesus took the death on himself for us in our place. He was our substitute. Um, We say Christ died for us. On November 26, 2008, terrorists attacked the Taj Mahal Palace Hotel in Mumbai, India. They opened fire with machine guns and began to mow down people in a large ballroom. Over 200 dinner guests were killed. One man survived. Later, he was asked how he survived since everyone sitting at his table were killed. He said, as the gunshots began, someone just grabbed me and pulled me under the table. In a few minutes, after all the shooting, the terrorists began to walk through the room from table to table, shooting the wounded. The man laid motionless when they passed. He said, I suppose because I was covered in someone else's blood, they took me for dead. He was covered in someone else's blood. And because of that, He got life. He didn't get death. When Jesus Christ died on the cross 2,000 years ago, his blood covered you. When he died, the blood he shed on the cross, because of who he is, he is God, his life is infinitely valuable, and God the Father accepted that as a ransom payment for our sin. And God said, the Father, I am satisfied with this payment. It is done. And Jesus paid for the sin penalty of the whole world. He, God has given one responsibility to us, and that is to believe what he said about his son. John 3, 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave. God is the one who gives. His one and only son, that whoever, anyone, you and me, believes in him, will not perish, not experience eternal death, not experience hell, but have eternal life. Or Jesus would say, enter the kingdom of God. And... uh, as we close this morning, and we're going to have communion, but I would just like to uh, give an offer to anyone in this room. If you would like to begin a relationship with God, you, it's a relationship that you can choose. It, and how do you choose it? You choose it by your faith. It's your choice. It's a relationship you can choose. And um, 
One of the ways you can express your faith is by a simple prayer. Prayer isn't a magic formula. It's just a way you can express your faith, talking to God from your heart. And uh, I'm going to say a prayer, and I'm going to say it two times. And the first time, I want you just to hear it, because I don't want anybody to pray something that they don't understand. They don't want to be surprised. So the first time, I'm just going to say it out loud, and you just listen. Prayer goes something like this. Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner. Thank you that Jesus died for me, and I trust him right now to pay the penalty for my sins. And right now, I want Jesus to come into my life. I want to ask him to help me to be the person that he wants me to be. So that's it. That's a way to express faith. That's a way to receive what God is offering, the gift of salvation, that Jesus died for you, and you're trusting him. That's what it's about. You trust what God says. You receive the gift by believing. So let's all bow our heads together, and I would like to pray. And this time, um, as I pray, if you've never placed your faith in Christ, I would invite you to pray silently from your heart. You can talk to God without making any sound. Just talk to him silently from your heart and repeat uh, after me. Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner. I thank you that Jesus died for me. I trust him right now to pay the penalty for my sin. And I want to ask Jesus to be in my life. I want to ask him to help me to be the kind of person that he wants me to be. I want to change. I'm willing, God. Please help me. Now, if everybody would just keep their heads down and their eyes closed, if you prayed that prayer with me, would you mind just slipping up your hand so I could see? If you prayed with me, just slip up your hand. Okay, you can put your hands down. Thank you, God, for those... um, right now who have uh, placed their faith in you, who have come to you by faith. And I pray that they might sense that their sins are forgiven and they might sense your presence and that they might start living for you with your help today. And God, for all of us, my prayer is that we would follow you now that we recognize it's not about just believing the right things, but it's about doing what you've asked us to do. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen.